You're listening to The Jazz Session with Jason Crane. Since 2007, the original jazz interview podcast. Lesson one, basic hip. Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. This is episode 615 for May 3rd, 2023. On this episode, saxophonist Bob Mincer. Members of the Jazz Session also get This I Dig of You, the Patreon bonus show, on which I ask the guest from the main show to talk about something non-musical that is bringing them joy. If you want to hear Bob's answer, you can hear it by becoming a member for five bucks a month at thejazzsession.com slash join. You'll also get early access to every episode of the show. You'll get thanked by me on an episode. You'll get occasional behind-the-scenes info and other bonus material. Speaking of that thank you, I've been thanking members in the middle of the episodes, but starting with this one, I'll be naming a different Patreon supporter as that episode's sponsor. So this episode is brought to you by Richard Caymans, who, fittingly, was on the very first Patreon bonus show when the Patreon first started. You can find that in the member archives, and thanks to Richard for sponsoring this episode. Bob Mincer's latest album features the WDR big band. It's called Soundscapes. Here's a sample. Bob Mincer, welcome back to the Jazz Session. Thanks, Jason. Happy to be here. I'm really happy to have you. Uh, I'm saying welcome back because not that long ago you were on an episode where we were doing a preview of uh, a jazz festival, the James Moody Jazz Festival, and there was a short interview there. But now we're going to do a, a full episode. I'm very excited about that. And I kind of wanted to take uh, this conversation, although we'll talk about very recent things too, but I, I kind of wanted to take it back to to my first exposure to your music, which was playing a uh, computer in a big band when I was in high school. I think it was maybe an all-state band or something in about 1988. Uh, it had just come out a few mm -hmm. years before on Incredible Journey, and I still love that piece. I still love that record. And I guess I wanted to start about talking about your approach to composing for big bands. And as my understanding kind of your first real chance to do that was uh, in the Buddy Rich years. Is that right? That is correct. Yes. I, I wrote my first, I guess, six big band pieces for that band. Five or six. Yeah. Did and, you have any particular <laughs> guidance like from Buddy at that time or from anybody else who was arranging for the band? Or what, what was that like? Were you well, just thrown in the deep end? Or It was unspoken. Uh, uh, it, Buddy was, uh, you know, from the old school. He didn't read music. He wasn't what you'd call a patient person. He wanted, 
he he wanted you to bring in music, run it down once, and then play it, you know, on, on the concerts. And uh, so it was. I was thrown into the fire. I learned a lot very quickly about you know what not to write, how to write for a big band, uh, you know, without taxing the musicians. And in the case of the Buddy Rich Band, that was something you definitely didn't want to do because if you made it difficult for the players. Uh, you know, they would then bear the wrath of Buddy, who didn't want to hear your problems. He, you know, just play the part, right? Even, <laughs> even if it's like poorly written and impossible to play. So, you know, there were a couple of instances where, where, where particularly like the trumpet players went, "Man, you don't write that because Buddy's going to be, you know, up my rear end if I don't play it well, and it's really hard to play." So, you know, there's there's really something very beneficial about writing for a professional band and, you know, falling on your face and getting up and making mistakes and learning from them. In the, in the many years that you've written for large ensembles since then, have you learned that some of the things you were warned away from doing actually do work in other settings? Oh gosh, no. I mean, most, most of those early, uh, lessons really, uh, stand pat today i mean they you know don't overwrite don't write too high for the brass in fact you know a, a big part of my writing today it has to do with the fact that when i had my own big band for the last umpteen years i sat in the saxophone section which was in front of the brass section and the brass bells were aimed at our heads up there in the sax section so <laughs> I, I i quickly learned if you don't write too high and loud your ears are very grateful, you know, at the end of the evening. And, 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 and furthermore, it, you know, there's just a lot of interesting textural things you can get to without having, you know, a, a brass players screaming, you know? So that, that I just learned over time, just through, through the process of writing and, and playing live and, you know, get, uh, having the luxury of making 20 big band records during my lifetime. You learn a lot doing that. And so it sounds like you're saying that your your writing for large ensembles is certainly different because of the fact that you played in the bands, often played in the bands for which you were writing. Absolutely. I mean, it, it, that, that really is what informed my writing from the very beginning. I mean, in the Buddy Rich Band, getting to play every night for the first thing, I mean, for two and a half years. And then secondly, hearing... And playing these arrangements of, you know, some of the greatest uh, arrangers in the business, Bill Holman, Bill Reddy, uh, Don Sebesky. And, you know, that that sound stays with you, you know. And, and, And in my case, where I didn't really study arranging as in looking at scores initially, uh, uh, you know, that was, that was what informed my writing, just the sounds that, I had in my head playing. While we're on the subject of big bands, uh, last year you put out an album called Soundscapes with the WDR big band for whom you also serve as a conductor. And that band has certainly built up quite a reputation over the years uh, under your leadership and, and before. And this album also features all of your own writing. And I, I just, I'd love to know about the experience of working with the band on this particular record. Oh, that was, that was a, a real joy uh, on on so many levels. Um, 
I've had a relationship with the WDR Big Band for 30-plus years. I went over there initially in the 80s and did a few productions. And in the 90s, the Yellow Jackets were there, did a couple of things. And then I guess about, what, 10, 12 years ago, I uh, went and did a few more productions and eventually sort of came to that juncture where they asked me to be the chief conductor. And it was I, I couldn't really, at that point, commit to doing the whole thing but they worked out this great arrangement whereby vince mendoza is called the composer in residence and i'm the chief conductor and we we split a good deal of the duties uh but there are also a whole there's a whole stable of uh great arrangers and composers that go over there as well but doing soundscapes was a joy i mean i we got to spend 10 days basically rehearsing and recording this music which on, on my previous records, never, ever happened. You know, nothing close. I mean, to, to, to use uh, an A-team big band, either in, well, it was in New York for all of my records, but, you know, at, living in L.A., also putting together a big band there is is very difficult, just in terms of the busyness factor of all the great players. So if you're, you're lucky if you get, you know, a couple hours rehearsal once. <laughs> yeah. And then, and then, you know, just the cost factor also plays into it where, you know, you, you I, I, on all my records, basically, we, particularly the DMP records, we, we just recorded live to two track. It was two four-hour sessions, and, and that was it. Whereas with this WDR thing, doing the soundscapes recording, like I said, we had 10 days, you know, like four or five hours a day, and it was very luxurious and very relaxed. I got to really put the microscope to all of the music, make changes where necessary, try different things, and, you know, get good takes of things. It was fantastic. The sound on that record, I mean, it, it really, sh- the, what you're describing really shows. I, I was thinking even of um, the opening moments of, I think it's the second track, the conversation that begins with a lot of percussion. And it's just right. so wide and clear and and powerful. I mean, it it really sounds like a thing where there was time to make sure everybody was mic'd properly and to make sure, you know, there were people in the studio able to really track every second it just it sounds so great and i think that that makes such a it seems like a stupid thing to say but it makes such a difference when you listen to a record oh, yeah. you feel like you're there in the room it's it's really great absolutely absolutely i mean i'm, I'm proud to say any any recording i've done under my own name uh, has has a wonderful sound and is like a really great representation of the playing of course the playing also is at a very high level that that that's a must 
In the case of WDR, big band, it's, they're a great band. Everyone plays beautifully, and they, they're playing together all the time, so they really know how to make a sound, you know, uh, as one. And then there's a whole team of uh, people in the booth. Uh, there's the tone meister, the guy who, you know, is the score reader that kind of makes comments, then, you know, a, an engineer, an assistant. And, you know, they're, they're at it day after day so it's a well-oiled machine they really know how to record music and you know the the band puts out a lot of cds and they they all sound wonderful you know so i'm very grateful to be a part of all that is the band state funded is that why you had 10 days i mean is that where that comes from they just do things right it's it is state funded but not in the way you might think The, the way it works in germany is any citizen who owns a television or radio, or there's an internet component as well, pays a monthly fee that goes into a pot. It works well, and and that money then funds symphony orchestras, choirs, and in this case, uh, there's there are four major big bands in Germany uh, that are working. So uh, they have a budget, and they are able to do things the right way. And uh, it really shows, because there's just wonderful music coming out of the band in Frankfurt and Hamburg and Cologne, where I, I work, and Stuttgart, for that matter. So they're doing it right. You know, I mean, the closest thing we have in this country to that is the Lincoln Center Jazz Orchestra. You know, they're well-funded. They have a, a machine that works. You know, the band is playing together a lot. <clears throat> they sound great, and they make great recordings. You mentioned when you uh, started talking about WDR that you had a, a three-decade uh, relationship with them. And when you were most recently on uh, the jazz session, as I mentioned at the top, we were talking about Yellow Jackets, with whom you also have a three-decade relationship. And, I mean, I just I know so few musicians who have a three-decade relationship with any, you know, any other musicians. It's just it's hard, to, it's hard for a variety of reasons to make, to make that happen. Is there something in your particular makeup that, that makes you stick to things like this? Um, I would, I would hope so. I, I, I mean, I think, you know, if you're an agreeable person, somebody that's a team player, somebody that's easy to work with, somebody that is fairly relaxed in work situations, then, you know, people are going to continue to work with you because it's a, it's a nice experience. Uh, in the case of the yellow jackets, you know, everybody in the band is is a beautiful human being, you know, and, and we really cherish this idea of 
you know, the group conscience and, you know, uh, supporting the band, you know, uh, and, and, you know, that being the focus, sort of the ego issues fade into the background. And, you know, even, even with the WDR where there's, you know, 17 people, there is a certain amount of leadership that is called for in certain instances. But, but again, that collaborative way of thinking goes a long way, you know, versus somebody that stands up in front of a band and tells everybody what to do. There's something that could be potentially grating about that. Whereas, you know, if, if you, you gently steer things in a direction, but in a way where people are included, I, for example, when we rehearse with the WDR big band, there's a lot of suggestions flying around. I don't make all the suggestions because I don't have all the answers. And, I, you know, there's a lot of great players in that band, and I, I welcome their input. And I think <clears throat> not only does it help the music, but it helps everybody to feel a part of, you know. And that's that's why those two entities uh, have sustained a long career. Yeah, when we talked uh, briefly last time about Yellow Jackets, it, it sounded like a very collaborative process, like just like you're describing now, where someone you know will bring in uh, an idea, but once once it gets brought in, it's kind of released into this collective approach to music making, as opposed to you know one captain says this is how it is and this is how we're playing it. Right. Yeah, that's that's right. That's what we do. When I was preparing for this and I was just kind of going back through your recording history, I saw a number that <laughs> truly amazed me that you've appeared on more than a thousand recordings, which is like, that's like getting into like Bing Crosby territory, you know, like the, who's <laughs> I think the most recorded voice in human history. And I mean, there can't be that many more people who have a four digit <laughs> discography that just seems incredible. I mean, does that, was there some moment for you that kind of unlocked this demand? Did you get in a situation where just suddenly you were in the right spot? At the, I'm not saying, are you not a good saxophone? <laughs> Obviously, it's because you're a talented saxophonist. But I mean, there are other talented saxophonists who just haven't been on a ton of recordings. Do you feel like you were kind of in a right place at the right time situation at some point? Yeah, I, I do. I, I, I came up in New York um, during a time, you know, late 70s into the 80s, when the studio scene was really firing on, on, I don't, I was going to say all cylinders, but I mean, it was even busier in the sixties and the early seventies. But, um, I, I caught the tail end of the busy period where there were a lot of records being made in New York. And, um, and I was fortunate enough to, you know, be a, to ha uh, have an association with people like Randy Brecker and Dave Sanborn and the guys that were busy. So, you know, I was able to kind of integrate into that scene, which, which is where I played on a lot of those thousand recordings, you know, mainly sometimes as a soloist, but frequently just in a horn section. Um, and it was, it was a, an exciting, interesting time just to, uh, to get inside these, you know, some, some of them very iconic records, Steve Winwood, Aretha Franklin, uh, people like that, Diana Ross, Queen. I played on a Queen track one time. I used to work for Arif Mardin, this uh, producer. Wait a minute. Which Queen and, track did you play on? Do you? Uh, I don't remember. <laughs> I, I, the, the, the 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 LP, right? It was an LP back then. I think it was called Master of the Game. Okay. And I honestly don't even know if, you know, a lot of times, 
you go do a session and the tune would never make it on the record. You know? <laughs> sure. <laughs> um, but I, I played, you know, I played on a James Taylor record, a Steve Winwood record. Uh, as I said, I used to work for this guy, Reggie Lucas, uh, who was a guitar player that worked with Madonna. I think he played with Miles a little bit. And he and uh, Jimmy Heath's son, M. Toomey, had a production company in New York, and I used to do sessions for them, a lot of R&B records. Uh, so, you know, that, that, that was the bulk of those thousand recordings. Uh, you know, you were, it was busy back then, you know, guys were playing on records every day, sometimes twice a day. And then, you know, then I was, you know, playing on jazz records and people would call me to play a solo on a record or be involved, you know, in some, some capacity. And also uh, to be fair, a lot of those thousand recordings are reissues of things, you know, where, where there was a track that was reissued as a compilation of some sort. So, um, but yeah, that's, I did a lot of recording in my 70 years on the planet. And you would think that for someone for whom that is true, that that would be the main way their legacy would continue into the future. But I would suggest that in addition to that, you have another way in which your legacy is going to continue and maybe even more broadly than that, which is the fact that you have written so many hundreds of big band and other, but I want to focus on the big band charts. I mean, as I said that, you know, in the eighties, that was how I learned that a guy named Bob Mincer existed because I was in a big band that played one of your charts. And as I think I told you in the, in the previous interview we did, that was kind of my road into everything else you were involved with at the time. That's how I learned about yellow jackets, et cetera, et cetera, just because of that one chart. And just the other day I was talking to a friend of mine who's a music educator now and said, Oh yeah, I, I use Mincer charts all the time. And I mean, I just feel like that's going to keep going far into the future. It, and it feels really, it feels really cool to me because I, it just it feels like a way in which you are influencing generation after generation of people to think about this music and about arranging and about how parts flow together, even if they're maybe not consciously thinking of that all the time, but they're just experiencing it through your writing. I wonder what how, how does that feel to you? Um, it, it it feels good. I mean, I'm 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 honored to. <laughs> to be in that position. It, it's funny, you know, I, I don't, I don't often stop and think that way. I mean, I'm sort of, I, I think the whole writing thing for me just kind of fell out of the sky, um, which, which is the case in life. I think, uh, in many instances where just an, uh, an opportunity presents itself, uh, in, in my case, I mean, I've always been intrigued by writing, you know, and composing, but on a very small level. And then when I got on the Buddy Rich Band and, you know, I had the opportunity to write there, um, I really jumped on it, you know. I mean, I, I I started writing, you know, with a lot of enthusiasm and vigor, and I wrote as much as I could. And, it, you know, it, it was something that presented itself, and I, I, I you know, decided this is something I, I hadn't intended to do initially, but it's here, and I'm going to do this and try to do it well. And... You know, and and I think all the situations that led to me writing more were were of that nature, where it's just like something happened. I mean, I started a big band in New York at this club, Seventh Avenue South, that Mike and Randy Brecker owned, and I called like all the hotshot musicians in New York, which attracted a lot of attention, including record company people, and so 
then I had this opportunity to start recording for this company, DMP, Digital Music Products. We did, I don't know, 12, 13 big band records there over a 20-year period. But again, the opportunity kind of fell out of the sky, and I, I really jumped on it and did something, you know, about it. And that all led to writing more, right, for the recordings. And then uh, the other thing that fell out of the sky was uh, I wrote initially, before all that, for the Mel Lewis big band uh, 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 LP of Herbie Hancock tunes that they recorded live in Montreux. And Mel, who was just the most wonderful, gracious human being, hooked me up with Ken Dor Music, the publisher that was publishing Thad Jones and Bob Brookmeyer and Sammy Nestico. And so all those Herbie charts got published, which ultimately led to, you know, the, the pieces on my own recordings getting published there. And I had a very long relationship with Kendor music as well. So all these things kind of spurred me on, you know, and I'm, I'm the kind of person that, you know, will work hard when the opportunity presents itself. Uh, and I've always done that. I'm, I'm doing it today. I was, Sitting, eating, uh, eating breakfast, writing, <laughs> working on a big band arrangement for Lionel Lewicki and the WDR big band. That's going to happen the next month. Is that Freudian slip there of eating music? I feel like that's probably also <laughs> true. <laughs> that, that, that is true, yeah. Let's take a quick break from the interview to remind you about becoming a member. Members of the show also get the bonus show, which is called This I Dig of You. I ask the guest from the main show to talk about something non-musical that they're enjoying so we get a chance to hear another side of their lives. You can hear the bonus episode by becoming a member for $5 a month at thejazzsession.com slash join. Now, when you become a member, you get early access to every show, you get thanked on an episode, you get behind-the-scenes information and other bonus shows. You also get access to every previous bonus show, and there are a lot of those. So there's This I Dig of You, there's the stuff that Nikki did when she was hosting the show for a year, and then there's all of the stuff that predates that. So there are lots and lots of bonus shows for you to check out. You can get access to all of that by joining today at thejazzsession.com slash join. Thank you very much, and now back to the interview. It's so interesting hearing you you talk because you're you are one of those guys who is connected. I mean, you're still making vibrant music now. You're still uh, teaching the next generation of musicians about which we'll talk in a second. But you're also, I mean, you're connected to Tito Puente and Buddy Rich and Jocko and Thad Jones and Mel Lewis. And I mean, not to mention all you know the the pop and rock folks that uh, you mentioned, like James and Aretha and all those people. And mm-hmm. I mean, there's just I feel like we're we are getting to a point where there's a limited number of folks who have firsthand experience of a lot of those names that I just mentioned. And you mentioned uh, that, you know, you, you don't often think about the, the kind of retrospective quality or the, you know, the, the writ large 
image of your life. But I wonder if you ever, does it ever strike you that you're a person who, I mean, just spans several generations of jazz performers, you know, back to the people that we consider the absolute masters of this music? Uh, again, I'm 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 stuck in the present and uh, and and busy and you know uh, occasionally I'll look back and go wow I've I've had quite the illustrious career and done some wonderful things but uh, more, more often than not I'm kind of busy <laughs> in the moment doing what I do um, but I I I I really appreciate having had all these opportunities and particularly when it comes to I mean, not only playing and writing, but teaching, you know, I mean, there's, there's something very potent about a teacher who's been there and had, you know, a vast experience level talking about a, a particular subject matter. And I think, I think students pick up on that and, you know, it, it, it just feels good to pass on what was passed on to me in this nature. Let's focus on that. You teach at the USC Thornton School of Music and jazz program there. Will you talk about what you teach and and what the students are like that you interact with? Um, we have some incredibly talented students there. They're all very dedicated. Uh, some really great composers and arrangers this year in particular. Um, and I I direct the top big band. I teach a freshman class called Elements. Uh, to the incoming freshmen, which is great because I can sort of grab them as they walk in the door and hopefully impart, you know, it's just some disciplines and things that they will be working on subsequently. I teach a graduate level uh, jazz composition and jazz improv course. And what else? I t uh, some private, pri I have some private students, both in woodwinds and arranging composing. Given the what I imagine are the ages of your students, can you talk about how you how you connect with them and also how you, I guess, without coming across as like a guru down from the mountain, how you talk to them about the very things we were just talking about? You know, this kind of imparting the things that were imparted to you. You know, we talk about vocabulary, right, which somebody definitely needs to have to uh, expound on any given subject. In the case of jazz music, you need to to know what sort of melodies are typically used in improvising. Uh, we talk about repertoire, as in you know having a, a, a bank of songs of tunes that that you know you're well versed in and and can play you know uh, by heart. That repertoire ultimately uh, informs one's vocabulary as well, because. You know, just the, the great songs that were written in the 30s, 40s, 50s uh, just have these incredible melodies that carry over to improvising in a big way. We talk about arranging and composing because as a player, those disciplines are the vehicle, or can be, should be maybe, the vehicle for your playing. You know, I mean, all the great jazz artists wrote music that, showcase their playing in a particular way. Uh, we talk about, you know, just how to carry oneself in the music business on the scene, uh, what's expected. Um, and I, pl I bring my horn every time I go to school and, and we play together. I like to play for them because, you know, sometimes a, a, an older person talking a lot can sort of get on your nerves. Whereas 
you know, if somebody like pulls out an instrument and plays something that really demonstrates some aspect of what they're talking about, I think then a student can go, oh, okay, this guy knows what he's talking about. So, yeah, all those things. And, you know, I, I think one of, the, one of the key components of teaching is to, to encourage and inspire rather than to break down, you know. So I'm very careful about not discouraging any student, even, even, if, even if they're dropping the ball, if they have particular things to work on, rather than say, you're not making it, uh, there's a more gentle way to do that and a more constructive way, I feel, by just saying, this is what's lacking, but if you try this, this could potentially kind of improve a particular aspect of what you're doing. My guest for this episode has been Bob Mincer. Uh, I mean, someone I've been listening to since I was a kid, and certainly, you know, you and and uh, folks like you from that generation are a huge part of why I do what I do. So uh, it's an absolute joy to have a chance to have you on the show. Thanks so much for being here, Bob. My great pleasure. Anytime. Thanks to my guest for this episode, Bob Mincer. Thanks also to the members who support this show and to the Respect Sextet at respectsextet.com for the theme music and Sarah Walter for the logo. You can message me for more info about Sarah. I'm at jason at thejazzsession.com. Chuck Ingersoll is the voice of the intro. You can find him at hearchucknow.com. Follow the Jazz Session on Twitter at jazzsesh, J-A-Z-Z-S-E-S-H, as long as that platform lives, and on Instagram and TikTok at the Jazz Session. Take a second right now, if you would, to rate and review The Jazz Session wherever you listen. It really improves my ability to reach new listeners. What improves it even more is if you share this episode with your friends using your own social media, pass it along to people you know. Nothing is better than word of mouth. If you'd like to keep up to date on this and my other podcast, my poetry, and more, you can subscribe to my newsletter. Just go to thejazzsession.com and click on the newsletter link. If you like what you just heard, become a member for five bucks a month at thejazzsession.com slash join, and then come back next time for another conversation about jazz on The Jazz Session. Bye. Bye. Bye.